the Good Enough Mother podcast. I'm your host, Sophie, a sociologist and a mother, and my mission is to change how motherhood is culturally defined and individually experienced. I want women who are mothers to feel supported, empowered, held, revered, and respected. I have discussions here with experts and changemakers who want to expand the conversation that we're having about motherhood. You're listening to episode number 60, Perfectionism in Partnerships and in Parenting. In this conversation, I speak with Michaela Thomas, and Michaela is a clinical psychologist, she's a couples therapist, founder of The Thomas Connection, and she's a speaker and author of her book, The Lasting Connection. And a lot of Michaela's work is driven around cultivating compassion for both yourself and your partner. And she has a special interest in perfectionism and parental mental health, especially for working mothers trying to juggle paid work and motherhood. And she has a mantra, which she says is balance over burnout. And so I was really curious to speak with Michaela about these themes of burnout, of overwhelm. She has a podcast actually, and a a model called Pause, Purpose, Play, which we get to at the end of this episode. And I was curious to have these conversations in the context of somebody who works with couples in relationship, because this is outside of my experience of being a mother as a single mother from when my daughter was first born. And so I am aware of how heavily the experience of being in a partnership mediates your experience of mothering. And most of the women mothers that I speak to are in partnerships and relationships of of some kind. And so we cover in this episode some really complex themes, actually, about how to talk about the agency that we have over our lives and the ways that we can cultivate self-compassion and move forward in making changes in our relationship and our lived experience in a way that feels connected and empowering, but also highlighting the socio-cultural and structural factors that really shape and influence how we are able to experience our lives and the ways that we're currently experiencing our lives. And so enjoy this episode. Please do share it with a friend. I'm really curious to hear from you what you thought about the conversation. And if you open conversations with your partner as a result of this episode, please do also head to the show notes and check out Michaela's website, her couples course, her book, The Lasting Connection. And you can find her on Instagram at the underscore Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S underscore connection. And on Facebook, she's The Thomas Connection. I want to welcome you onto the podcast today. I am so thrilled to have this conversation and I've been devouring your book over the last few days before we've begun speaking. And so I'd love if you could please just introduce yourself to the listeners and share with us a little bit about yourself and your book. Sure. Such an honor to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we already got deep into the meaty bits before we impressed the record. So I can't wait to do the rest. I'm Michaela Thomas. I'm a clinical psychologist and couples therapist. And I'm the founder of a private practice called The Thomas Connection. And hence the the title of my book being The Lasting Connection, because I'm really passionate about connection. And the book, The Lasting Connection, is is more about the connection you have between partners in a relationship. 
Well, as we mentioned just before we started recording, is that a lot of the wisdom that comes from that book can also be applied to the child and parent relationship as well. So there'll be lots of crossovers. And a lot of it also applies to the relationship you have with yourself. So the book covers how we can develop more love and compassion for ourselves as well as our partner, knowing that the inner work starts with you, finding a kind of self-talk that you can then use as a way to speak more kindly and compassionately to your partner as well. So it has a few different sections to it. The first section, we talk a bit more about what relationships are and how there's no such thing as perfect love and the expectations and pressures that are on modern relationships today, you know, the societal pressures on that, but also our internal pressures to have perfect relationships that are always satisfying and always brilliant rather than tolerating that relationships go up and down. And the second part is more about compassion training, that you're kind of using different exercises and skills to train your brain to be more kind and compassionate with yourself as well as a partner. The third part is about then skills from what we know from classic relationship or couples therapy. So that's built on behavioral couples therapy. And you'll learn things like how to have better conversations, how to communicate, how to share thoughts and feelings, but then also how to use that compassion training into bringing you know, better decisions in front of you, how to not just slide into stuff, but actually decide what kind of life you want to live together, what's meaningful for you, connecting with your values, and then moving into some tough parts, you know, how we navigate challenges, like the strains on your connection through parenthood, through illness, you know, it might be that one or both of you will have times when you are mentally or physically unwell and how we cope with that, and even kind of dealing with the strain of infidelity or unfaithfulness, and then how we find forgiveness for ourselves and our partner when mistakes have been made. And lastly, the, the last section is moving forward into a more meaningful life together, finding self-care for yourselves to have better couple care, and also thinking about the, the journey ahead, that once you've worked through a book or worked through a course, it doesn't mean you're kind of done and you don't have to do anything else to work on your relationship ever. So the book is more of a kind of a companion on the road ahead that you can keep dipping in and out of it depending on what's going on and what season you're in in your relationship so to speak yes thank you for that brilliant summary i know how hard it is to succinctly convey the major themes in a major piece of work that we've produced so i really appreciate that and as i was reading your book i shared with you earlier i uh, it's obviously focused on the couple relationship and it talks about parenting as part of that as well. But I was just so interested that so much of what you were saying and the themes you were talking about and what you were suggesting could be picked up and, and lay right on top of speaking about the relationship between a mother and a child, you know, which is a lot about what I think about. And then I love there that you've also emphasized the relationship with ourselves too, because I think so much of this work, that's ultimately where we find our our way back to, you know, is back to the relationship that we have with ourselves and how that impacts and shapes the other relationships that we have and, and create. And so I'm really curious, you do a lot of work with couples and with parents. What do you think are some of the biggest sort of relationship challenges and or changes that you perceive in couples when they transition into parenthood? Well, each couple is different, obviously. I think a big difference I see, or big defining factor, is how self-aware each partner is in that couple's relationship. So someone who enters pregnancy and thinking we're going to become parents for the first time, if they have an awareness around how this might change, you know, who will I be when I become a parent, and, you know, entering into this new part of my identity, what's meaningful for me, what kind of values have I got as a parent, 
How do I want to raise my children? If you have an awareness around all of those things, that means you can open up conversations with your partner pre-labor, pre kind of this whirlwind of, you know, here's a new baby and it kind of is yours now to keep. So I think when that huge shock comes for, for a couple's life, when they have lived essentially only meeting their own needs, you know, meeting the, you know, each partner meets their own need and tries to meet the other person's need. And then suddenly they're having to be faced with meeting the needs of a, of a third party. You know, if we're thinking of a single child, obviously it could be two if you're twins, et cetera, et cetera. But it's almost like you're the dyad, the two people have gone from, from that kind of dynamic into a triad, as in you've gone into a triangle. And that can be really difficult for couples where then, especially in heterosexual couples, where the mother, if the woman is the primary caregiver, and say we look and say, for instance, at a breastfeeding mother, that dynamic becomes very, very difficult because the, the father, if, if in a heterosexual couple, can then feel very pushed out. It can feel like you're mothering the baby, but you're not giving me the same love and care and attention that I used to get before. So one partner can feel rejected and the other partner can feel overwhelmed and resentful because they're overworked, essentially, going from zero to 100 overnight. Now, this obviously is the same if you have uh, formula feeding, but you've fallen into the same gender stereotypes. So, and this is again, same thing if, if same-sex couples as well. So one person is usually the primary caregiver, regardless of their own genders. And when that's been decided, rather than just slided into, when they've decided, well, who's going to stay at home? Who's going to do the primary caregiving? Who's going to do the work outside of the home? What would that look like? And having an understanding of each other's roles with empathy and compassion, then that tends to go better. So the polar opposite is when that hasn't been decided consciously and you just find yourself in these kind of traditional gender roles that you may not have had in your relationship before you became parents. You might then become really angry, upset, put upon, resentful, and that can really show up in your communication. Uh, partners can become passive aggressive, they can become critical, because again, sleep deprivation occurs for most of us, even for those who are blessed with little angel babies. So, you know, we know that the natural thing for an infant to do is to wake frequently during the night as a part of their evolutionary needs. So to do that, and they're wanting that reconnection with the primary caregiver, means that whoever is doing the nights is going to be really tired. And the person not doing the nights might still be really tired because it's actually kind of hard to ignore the screams of an infant in your household. So one partner might be going out to work feeling exhausted, trying to do their job with the pressure of being the sole breadwinner at that point. So having the financial constraints, maybe pressure to perform better at work than they did before they had a baby. And now they're coming into a bit of sleep deprivation. The primary caregiver who's at home might then have that sleep deprivation as well as feeling lonely, feeling isolated. All of these things we know affect whoever is doing the parenting on the parental leave. That feeling of being de-skilled. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if I'm doing a good enough job with this. Getting really hooked by thoughts or feelings about failing or uh, doing damage to your child or not being as good as the other parents. And I keep kind of using the word parent rather than mother. We do know statistically speaking this is most often the mother, but I wanted to make sure that we include any kind of constellation of couple here because this is obviously... Uh, the same if you're two fathers. One of them is the primary caregiver. This still hooks you in a similar way. Now, because of the societal pressures, you also have other things that get layered on. So someone who is a father who is at home on parental leave might then be really, really struggling when they go to baby groups and see, you know, the 20 to 1 of woman to man kind of thing. So we had then other types of exclusions. So each kind of gender 
in the setup comes with its own challenges. But one of the most common things I see is that people don't recognize this and become aware of this until many years down the line. Some statistics show that it takes on average six years for a couple to seek help after they've become parents and started having these struggles, where some of these gender roles, identities have been stretched and strained. And rather than talking about it, they're just trying to muddle through. They're trying to just survive, get through the day. We all know that, you know, looking after a young child is very time consuming and it's hard to find the headspace and then think about what about us? You know, us as adults, us as partners, us as lovers, we're just trying to survive this thing that the bombshell that came into our home. So those are some of the common things I, I can see. And what kind of softens that is when people have, you know, a dialogue about it, when they have a communication saying, look, I've, I've not been feeling that my needs have been met. I get that you're shattered, you're exhausted, and so am I. So this may not be the time, but what can we, as in sort of the collective team spirit, what can we do to keep talking about this, to try to find time for us as well as for baby? Yeah, my mind is racing in so many directions of where we could take that. That was, that was a, a really great and comprehensive explanation of some of the themes that you see come up. I appreciate that. And I suppose part of what I'm first thinking about there is, which I know you've mentioned in your book as well, but to really just speak to and make visible some of the socioeconomic constraints and things that shape the level of choice that we have or don't have in that uh, relationship and that experience of moving into becoming a parent and the ways that policies are set up in particular ways and the way that our whole economy is designed is also to facilitate and support or place barriers in the way of our own kind of financial empowerment, freedom, capacity to engage in paid work, all of that. And, you know, probably the the trickier aspect of that there, which, you know, is probably a whole podcast topic on its own, but it is also acknowledging and recognising for mothers is because they're who I speak to, but thinking about for mothers, the embodied and physical aspects of pregnancy and giving birth and having a baby and that embodied relationship. And I know many of the women I've I've spoken to kind of can struggle with this tension of wanting and yearning for a sense of equality in their relationship and pre-motherhood, even having the conversations, right? Like we know from the research saying that even when you can have conversations and you have quite an equitable relationship early on pre-parenthood, you can revert to the traditional gender roles afterwards. And so what, what, how do you navigate that with couples where they may have a yearning and a desire to have things to be equal and to feel equal, right, and, or have a sense of equity in the relationship, but when it comes down to the person who is able to access leave, the person who is earning the higher income, the person who is breastfeeding the baby, they feel almost stuck in a place of not being able to do that. And I think, you know, would you speak to as well the sense of failure that can also come in like, well, here's this ideal that we wanted and we can't get it right. We can't do a good enough job of this. Mm, It's a really tough one. And I guess it's important to own that I don't have the answers to that fully because I don't think anyone does. I think this is an ongoing dialogue through 
some of the really important movements that are happening, especially in the UK, we've got organisations like Pregnant and Screwed that are doing a lot of work for parental rights, not just for mothers, but also knowing that, hence the title Pregnant and Screwed, that once you become pregnant, you know, you hit these glass ceilings, you get marginalised in the workplace. So then we think about in all of those different aspects that are societal, you know, how you're likely to have less of a pension, how you're likely to be less thought of for a promotion, all of these things that happen when women become mothers, and especially the kind of women I support who are often very high striving, ambitious women who put pressure on themselves to be perfect. It can then be really difficult to navigate the change of here's another sliver to the pie, like here's another part of my identity. I'm now a mother. And in a lot of ways, we then lose identity because we've become just mother. You know, if I think about my picking up my son from childcare, like I'm no longer Michaela, I'm just my son's mother. So sometimes I just get referred to as mum. So it's really, really hard to kind of find a way back to equality and equity when we know that societally in the UK, less than 7% of couples actually have equality in, in that sense of of having equal pay, having equal shared parental leave, it's its so uncommon. And in Sweden, where it has some of the best parental packages, parental leave packages, where we've come much further, because I'm originally from Sweden, where we've come much further with, with the sharing of the parental leave, the uptake of that is still less than 20%. So there's just kind of asking yourselves, what's coming from outside of us? What's the society, the pressures, the norms, the stereotypes and what's coming from within us and how can we carve out a piece of the world that works for us you know in our relationship that doesn't mean we have to do what everyone else is doing and keeping up with the Joneses it's just more about how do we find a balance that works for us and that does not have to be 50 50 split right in order to feel like you have equity it doesn't mean that you've divided everything 50 percent equally every given day of the week every given week of the month it might be that you find that your turn taking will have kind of a broader perspective. So it might be that you have a dialogue of, well, I'm going to choose again, sort of the mother tends to do this. I'm going to choose to have the parental leave. I want to be able to try to breastfeed. So it makes sense that I'm probably going to respond more to the physical needs of the baby in the beginning. How are we going to even that out? How are we going to level it out? Does that mean that you then do more of the early morning walks or you do more of the nappies or you come home and do the the pickups of our older child from nursery. Like, how do we balance it in a way that feels equitable to us, right? It doesn't have to mean that we then have to say, for those mothers who wish to breastfeed, then thinking, actually, I then have to introduce mixed feeding because otherwise I can't split it 50-50 with my male partner. Again, if that's a choice that works for you, where you don't think he gets the involvement, we get to split the nights evenly. If that works for you, then it's workable. Right. So I'm very much a pragmatist where I'm saying, is this workable for you? How does that solution leave each of you feeling? And in the book, I talk a lot about how the difference between compromise and sacrifice is really important to be aware of. A compromise is a solution that each of you get your needs at least partially met. Like you're meeting somewhere in the middle and that doesn't have to be 50-50 in the middle where you're actually agreeing. Yes, okay, well, I'm getting 30 here and you're getting 70. Well, that's okay because in six months from now, we're going to split it the other way, etc right? Uh, a, a sacrifice is one where you agree to a solution that you're actually really deeply unhappy with, and you're likely to be resentful with your partner afterwards and hold it against them. This is something I see in a lot of relationships where a decision was made and they weren't really keen on that. And then that feeds into any future decisions because you're already holding stuff over the head of your partner saying, but I didn't get this. And I didn't get that. Mm. So don't make those sacrifices, which women are very keen to do, especially those who struggle with people pleasing. We might be very sort of 
prone to self-sacrifice and self-silencing our needs. And the tricky bit with that, when that shows up in partnerships, is that rather than thinking, well, I'm meeting my partner's needs, I'm being really, you know, being a, a good wife here or whatever those kind of quote unquote stereotypes we have, is that it isn't related or isn't linked with relationship satisfaction. When you people please, when you put yourself last, when you don't meet your own needs, when you don't voice your own needs, it's related to long-term resentful feelings in your relationship and dissatisfaction on both parts. You know, you're dissatisfied because you're not getting what you need. Your partner is dissatisfied because they're living with someone who's really resentful and grumpy and also have no clue what you want. So they can't actually satisfy you. So those are really important aspects to be aware of that, as a summer, I guess, you don't have to be focused on splitting things 50-50. That's not what equitable means. It's about what, what looks right for you or feels like a good compromise for you in your setup to make that workable for the, what you have in, happening in your place. It might be that one of you is up for a promotion and then you have to kind of unfairly wait it a little bit for a while for you to kind of to get you over the finish line. And then, okay, well, I've just had that. You know, how do we make space for you now? It's much more about turn taking than it's about constantly evenly splitting things. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think that anybody who is doing the practical work of raising children and having a baby would very well know that that's the lived reality, that it's not going to be 50-50. And when we, or if we're in positions where we're kind of counting, you know, the amount of nappies that we each change, I mean, whatever, right, that, 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 that only leads to a sense of resentment. But I suppose where, where I'm sitting in this conversation is, as I shared with you before we started talking, I'm a single parent. And so I don't have any experience of this. And I, I know it from a research and literature and like scholar perspectives from motherhood studies, but I don't have lived experience of it. And so I, I assume anyone who is probably clicked on this episode is likely in a couple relationship in order to have the interest to be listening. But I also want to acknowledge, I suppose, how difficult it can be even in thinking about the splitting of things equitably or the shared care, for example, for people who are negotiating different family forms too, and thinking about maybe other children from the relationship that may be involved with your, with your current partner or being a single parent, right. And having going into a new relationship, right, with someone new and all of the ways that actually how we expect to parent and how the expectations that we set up going into parenthood can be so, so different to the lived reality. I mean, I had all of those conversations pre-motherhood around what our days would look like and I tried to implement um, the sort of scaffolding of that and that all obviously fell to pieces. And part of what I have reflected on in my experience when listening to friends share their challenges in relationships and, and what you've just been sharing with us here as well is in some ways I think that sometimes I have it easier in a sense because I don't have any expectation there it's all on me anyway and so I don't have any expectation or resentment because I'm the one doing everything I don't have a partner mm -hmm. there who is I'm looking at thinking oh you should be doing this and so I wondered like to what extent do you think the stories that we tell ourselves like acknowledging everything we've just spoken about but I'm curious to kind of move into talking about the relationship that we have with ourselves and the expectations that we place on ourselves to what extent do you think the, that process and the story making and the narratives that we're living in and by shape our experience of relationship and parenthood more broadly? 
Oh, massively. You know, the way we've been shaped by our upbringing, uh, how we were parented ourselves has given us a working model of what love connection and relationships look like or should look like. I know you kind of talk a lot about the, the should word as well as much as I do, that when we have those expectations, then that's very different to say hopes or wishes or, you know, trying to get my needs met. When we have strong expectation, we often set ourselves up for disappointment. So I think of it almost similar to how we think of the difference between say birth plan versus say birth wishes or birth preparation. It's a little bit like that. We can prepare for the, the kind of the, the arrival of this new baby. We can talk about it. We can try to have wishes and hopes and dreams for how parenthood will be but nobody can prepare you for what it will be like. Nobody can tell you how it's going to change you and your couple's dynamic until you are there. And that's why we're having kind of an openness, having an awareness around, okay, well, this is what's happening right in front of me. And why present moment awareness, like mindfulness, for instance, is really helpful. And that doesn't mean that if you're saying, oh, I'm practicing mindfulness in my relationship. So that means I have to sit down and meditate for an hour a day. Mindfulness in my relationship can be I am aware of what shows up internally for me, what shows up, what thoughts and feelings show up for me when this thing happens in my relationship. And then I'm trying to be aware of what shows up for my partner, trying to kind of check in with them. And the difference is that we're thinking about the relationship with ourselves versus the relationship with another, like our child or our partner, is that we can't mind read. You know, if I could do that, I'd be, you know, a millionaire and I'd be really even better at my job. But I can't do that. So we have to ask ask the other person we have to ask for clues we have to look for clues and we have to ask for confirmation and not just assume what's going on for them but check it out so i often say the mantra of like if in doubt check it out otherwise you will jump to lots of conclusions of how is your partner taking to to parenthood how are they finding the, the early days are they having the you know their expectations confirmed or shattered and often when we've had very high expectations put pressure on ourselves to be a certain thing i know i certainly did before i became a mum I, I kind of had this image that because I do you know mindful compassion things for a living I do my breath work and that would just be calm and serene and I would meet every emotional need at all times for my baby and then reality hit that I got a baby who had you know severe undiagnosed tongue ties severe allergies to the point of needing an EpiPen down the line you know high palate lots of breastfeeding pain then dropped centiles on the weight charts and everything was just irritable like he screamed non-stop so here I have this image of this idealized view of motherhood of how I would be thinking with the skills that I bring as a psychologist. That I would be so attuned. I'd be so connected all of the time. And then the reality hits where here's this actually very struggling little infant who's in pain and it got us on our knees. So I think just having the reality check that all of us will struggle at times, including our babies, and all of us in our relationships will struggle at times. That takes some of the pressure off having that perfect transition into motherhood or, or parenthood overall, because it's just not going to happen. So much like you would try to prepare for any eventuality in a labor, you want to prepare for any eventuality in, in your relationship when you become parents too. So mantras like, whatever happens, I'll handle it. It's much more helpful than I'm going to be like this. I, I should be always responding to my child's needs, or I should be always putting my baby first or these kind of unhelpful things that comes back into sort of almost people pleasing when we get into traps like that so this is how the link between our, our own relationship and, and the relationship with our partner really matters when we get into traps like that where we become self-sacrificing and do everything for our babies then what have we got left to give to our partner 
you know, you used to give love and care and affection to them as well. And you used to receive love and care and affection from them. Hopefully, if you decided to have a child together, there was hopefully an indication you had some love going on there before you became parents. Not in all cases, but hopefully. I guess that then gets a bit lost because if you're completely drained and shattered and not showing any kindness and care and compassion for yourself, it's then really difficult to give that out to others. And this is how coming back full circle to what you asked about sort of how what we've been been through experiences we've had shapes who we are as parents if you've not been shown care affection and kindness yourself as a child you grow up and into an adult who will struggle to do that for yourself and then struggle at times also to give it for your child or your partner we become blocked in these flows of compassion either internally to ourselves or out to others so that's really important to keep in mind that there's three flows of compassion. One that we most think of when someone is kind and compassionate is from yourself to others. But one we don't often think about is receiving it from others to yourself, which again comes back to high standards in motherhood. If you're struggling to, to accept help when it's given, or even worse, you struggle to ask for help, which is very, very common, then you'll be more vulnerable for having a stressful time postnatally and you're more vulnerable for having a hard time in your relationship because couples who have external support again coming back to your question of the socioeconomic status and financial support couples who have external support tend to navigate parenthood better they tend to have a higher level of satisfaction in the relationship than those who are without external support so then lo and behold pandemic hits and we have no external support because we can't see our loved ones so no wonder then that in the last year, the, I think I read some statistics that divorce lawyers have seen a 122% increase in their inquiries. No wonder. We're not meant to do our parenting alone. and We're not meant to do our couple's relationships alone either. We're supposed to have support around us. So then kind of coming back to the full circle of how I relate to myself is then having an impact on how I relate to others, like my child, like my partner. And having support in that makes it easier for me to relate to kindly to myself and easier to relate kindly to others. Mm. I'm so interested for you to speak back to me from your wearing your, you know, hat as a psychologist, because part of what I'm wanting to emphasize in this conversation, and this is part of what we've spoken about before is this tension between the individual agency and the structural social socialization aspect, because part of what I, I suppose, the lens of my analysis is going, but this is so much more emotional labor for women to do, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm thinking, okay, who's doing the thinking work? Who's doing the checking in? Who's keeping the pulse on the energy and the connection and who's reading the books and listening to the podcast. And, and now I'm not doing a good enough job. Or I'm just kind of speaking this out and then, and seeing you know how you'd like to respond back. But I'm thinking, okay, if I'm struggling, like, I'm not doing enough of this. I'm not checking in with them enough. How can I do that better? How can I be better? And so how, what would you say to listeners and people, women who are finding themselves in this place of feeling a sense of struggle in their relationships, recognizing the dynamics that are at play and how intense it is and knowing that they don't necessarily have the supports, but they're not able to resource themselves to get the supports because of whatever reason. How do we come back to a sense of compassion for ourselves whilst also empowering ourselves to be able to actually make a difference in our lives? So that tension between the self-acceptance, but also 
like the movement into change does that make Mm. it's a really tricky balance there because we do want to acknowledge that there are things going on around us societal pressures and norms and experiences that that will have inevitably you know shaping of your relationship and your internal processes as well so i think of of the inner world and the outer world or the outer pressure and the inner pressure and in my world you know work with perfectionists and and high strivers often i see the combination of the two that they often find themselves in a toxic culture or environment that feeds the internal high standards that they already have for themselves. You know, I'm already thinking that I'm not good enough. I'm already having a sense of uh, you know, lack of worthiness. So I will then have certain behaviors showing up in this toxic environment that will say, just thank you very much and keep praising me for doing those things. And those behaviors can be about not putting ourselves first ever. It can be very self-sacrificing. It can be overworking and kind of hustling you know juggling everything we kind of see this image of the the over busy mother and yes motherhood is hard work there's i'm I'm not going to detest that in any way because that is absolutely true i feel it on a daily basis but i think that the way you then think about what is the societal pressure and how do you make that worse with your internal pressure and how do the internal pressures get reinforced by the societal pressure that will just say thank you for for doing that i may not even say thank you but they will happily take it so when we see women going into corporate cultures or even in, in, my, in the UK, it's actually even in the NHS and like other, you know, public health sectors, uh, third, uh, third party sectors, even when those kind of happen, things happen, when you're in a culture that puts a lot of pressure to perform and exceed expectations, if you then have high standards for yourself, you will continue to strive for that perfection because doing anything else would be quite scary there might be then fears showing up that if I don't do this, if I don't overwork or if I don't try to get this piece of work done, even though I have to go to nursery and pick my child up, I'm going to have to pull an all nighter afterwards. Once they're in bed, I'm going to continue working because otherwise I won't meet this demand. Then that's how the societal, that's how this external also meets the internal where we then think if I don't do that, what do I fear will happen? If I don't meet that expectation, I will feel like a failure or other people might judge me or I won't be good enough or I won't get that promotion. So it's almost like we fear both good things not happening for us and missing out on good things and also fear negative things being added to our lives like criticism, disapproval, rejection. So I think that's also then plays out in our relationship with our children in terms of being mothers. That If I then think I have to be a mum like this, like make all the food from scratch and never buy fish fingers or you know, never give them screen time, all of these high expectations, we're then also existing in an environment that feeds that through, you know, through no fault of our own. We're, we're absorbing messages on a daily basis from media, from well-meaning parenting books that show us what we know about brain research and what we know about connection with our children. But if you have an inner pressure to be perfect, you might well absorb all of that through tainted glasses, through kind of glasses that will say, Ah, I didn't meet my child's emotional need perfectly in that moment, so I have failed. So then reading all the helpful things that we're thinking about the whole brain child and you know other kind of helpful books are out there. You can pick that up and read it thinking, I'm going to learn some new things about how to meet my child's emotional needs. Or you'll pick it up thinking, these are all the ways that I'm failing to meet my child's emotional needs because I'm not perfect, I'm not good enough. Yeah. So do you see the difference of how we then, we can either use helpful resources in a way to kind of soften and beat ourselves up less or we can use it as a way to find another stick to beat ourselves with yeah yeah hence 
the name of the podcast, <laughs> The Good Enough Mother, Winnicott. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I love that explanation. Thank you for framing it in that way. And I think it would be a good opportunity too for us to maybe end on you explaining the the pause purpose play model that you have. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. And yes. part of a part of this is also picking up on, on a thread that you mentioned there around the way that we're rewarded externally or culturally or societally and economically from a glorification of busyness, you know, a sense of actually the way to do life right is to be in constant overwhelm. And that actually, are you even doing motherhood right if you don't feel constantly guilty about all of the things that you can't get to because you have a to-do list a mile long? So this sense that even if we want to try and change our relationship with our partner, change our relationship with our children and with ourselves, a sense that actually we'll never be enough because we can never do enough because we have so much on our plates. Um, And so I wondered, yeah, if you wanted to share your model to to speak to that as well and how we can Mm. start to reclaim our capacity to slow down and pause where we can and what that can do for us. Absolutely. So if I start by explaining how I see the, the, the pause purpose play model, again, these are not, which I'm talking openly about in the book as well, these are not sort of revolutionary new things. These are me collecting the evidence-based strategies and the research that we know around the human mind, what we know psychologically is helpful for us. And I've just packaged it in a way that makes it a little bit more accessible for those of us who are very busy and high striving and struggle to to, to spend, you know, hours and months and weeks kind of trying to work through the inner work. So pause, purpose, play simply means that you pause for long enough to try to notice what's going on internally for you. Notice what's, what am I thinking in this given moment? Why am I feeling in this given moment? So that means you might tune into your needs. And a lot of women really struggle with that. So tuning into your physiological needs, that might be like, oh, actually in this moment, I'm noticing that I'm thirsty. I've not drunk all day and I've been feeding my baby a lot. That's a pause, right? So it doesn't have to be pausing as a seated meditation. If that floats your boat, that's that's absolutely part of pausing as well. Making space for uh, gaining perspective, noticing, becoming aware of not just the internal things, but also the external things around you. That might mean we'd say, actually, it's understandable, given everything I can see in society, given this research I just read about the mental load, having that awareness, pausing for long enough to see how does that influence my own relationship, my own way of seeing my my parenting. Actually, that is really helpful. And we can't do that if we're living life in the fast lane all the time. If you're constantly over busy, overworking, we won't have space for pausing to slow down for long enough to notice, actually, this is how I'm living and this is how I want to be living. And there's maybe a gap between the two. This is how I'm showing up in my day-to-day life with myself, with my partner, with my child. And this is who I want to be. So pausing also means we slow down to notice our values, notice how we want to live our lives, how, how that would be meaningful for us. And that's connecting us with purpose. And I find in my work that it's really, really difficult to do any purposeful work around purpose if people are constantly overwhelmed and overworking. They just need to find out a little bit, getting a little bit of perspective, standing back a bit. This is how I have been living my life. What did I intend for it to be like when I became a parent or when I started this new job or when I, when I married this person, whatever it might be, when I entered this relationship? And am I living my life like that or have I drifted away from those values? What can I do to close that gap? What can I do to gently return 
to the way of living my life that's meaningful for me. And it doesn't really matter what the under 100 people on social media do, but you, your own kind of true north. And when we do that, we can then live a more meaningful, satisfying, fulfilling life. Again, not perfect, but it means that we then open up for the ability to play. When we are more rested, when we have paused a little bit more, and I'm not saying that fully rested is something that, you know, working mothers or mothers or new babies or any of those things will ever feel, but you can create more pockets of pause, more pockets of rest so that you have capacity to play. And often we then think that play means another pressure to be perfect. Like I must do all of these fun things with my child. When I think of playfulness, I think more about freedom from rule following, freedom from freedom to choose to live your life like you want to. The ability to be silly sometimes, to do something spontaneous, to be liberated, to wear whatever you want to wear and do whatever you want to do in the playground with your child without worrying so much about the judgment of others. So kind of noticing all of that, standing back from it in your mind, connecting what matters with you, how you want to be as a parent, and then letting go and daring to play and be a little bit more free. So that's kind of the pause purpose play model in a nutshell. And it can be applied to couples. It can be applied to your own work stress and how you want to work in the you know day to day. It can be applied to who you are as a parent, anything, because it's just based on evidence-based practices around mindfulness, compassion, behavioral activation. A lot of these things we know from psychological research is helpful to be more flexible with ourselves. So coming back to your other question, which I now imperfectly, I forgot what it was about. <laughs> Can you repeat that again? No, I mean, that was, that was a beautiful explanation. Thank you. And it was really um, just wanting you to, to share that information, to situate it in the context of our sense of overwhelm and being constantly busy and the ways that we're placed in those contexts because of the broader social stuff, but also the ways that we can reclaim a sense of power in our own lives where we have the availability to, mm. so, you know, and I appreciate your, your emphasis there around, you know, the pockets of rest that we can create and the slices of time, you know, the little parts of our lives and ourselves that we can really capture to really be with because it's almost like we can increase the potency of our our lived experience and how much we're actually able to extract from our days and our lives when we live in with a sense of purpose which as you said can only really come after we've had a moment for the pause and then to move into the play which really in many ways I, I wonder if that's a natural consequence of doing the pause and then purpose because mm. that's what allows us to kind of move into deeper connection with ourselves and when we're there then we are moving in a way that is more liberated from those external constraints absolutely and it also means that we on a physiological level it's actually really difficult to come into playfulness which is about some spontaneity and, and feeling safe you know when we are kind of looking at that on a neurological level what happens in our nervous system when we are stressed out when we're in our threat system so to speak is that we get that adrenaline filled cortisol filled fight or flight which we know is unhelpful from everything to you know helping labor progress to starting a breastfeed to feeling close to your partner when we're in a threat system we're just going to be defensive we're reactive with our defensive strategies like fight flight freeze or appease that's very normal and that's part of being human that to notice when am I being threatened again the pausing is there's like oh I'm actually being really triggered right now I'm in my threat system then it's actually by default blocked from going into your kind of more playful way of being which is coming from your soothing system so your soothing system is the parasympathetic nervous system the rest and digest the calm and connect that kind of bit of you when you go ah that's kind of nice 
that's not the same as I'm having the best date I've ever been. Like we just took a surprise trip to Paris or whatever. That's the drive system. The drive system is about vitality, excitement, meaning, feeling really sort of upbeat, elated. That's all the dopamine that we get from our reward system. So when we are playing with our kids, we might have that kind of belly laugh kind of moment where we're running around chasing monsters or, and that's just in that moment, we're just losing ourselves and we're just having lots of fun. That's really hard to step into that drive system where we can do things and achieve things and have fun if we don't feel safe. We don't enter from the threat into the drive with vitality. When we are doing that kind of play, when it's driven by a threat, it's much more about if I don't do this, then I'm a failure. If I don't get down on the floor and play with the Lego right now, I'm not a good enough mum. This is what good mums do, etc. So when we then put pressure on ourselves, that is not associated with being in our soothing system, being calm, connected, and it's really present, not wanting anything. It's still trying to escape the threat, trying to escape the fear that if others saw me right now, I'm just sitting here kind of being on my phone, I'm too overwhelmed, too tired to do anything with my kid, then they would judge. So that's then threat-infused drive. So this is why these three circles, which we call our kind of emotional systems, is really, really important to be aware of that it's not your fault. Coming back to your sort of questions of like, what's the, the, the dichotomy here between society and our internal world is that it is not our fault that we've been through things and shape, that have shaped us over our lifetime and our experience, but it's our responsibility, it's our accountability, what we do with that. And then that's where we think about coming at that with compassion, that we don't want to come at that with a harsh, inner critical voice that says, well, you've been through this and that, yeah, sure, that wasn't your fault, but now you're accountable for it. That Come on, sort yourself out. That's not the kind of edge we want to bring to it. It's much more of a softness, a soothing, saying, gosh, no wonder that you're finding yourself really overwhelmed. You know, you've been working really long hours this week and now you've been really hooked by these thoughts that you should play with your child on the weekend, but all you have energy for is to sit here and doom scroll on your phone you know what? That's so normal. Like, that's so common. I bet you if I, I chatted to hundred mums right now and I get in truth serum and made them not lie to me, they would say, yeah, I've done that. I've done that totally. So no wonder then that you're really overwhelmed in this moment and you find it really hard to get down on, on the floor and do something with your child. And then you feel really hooked by these feelings of guilt that you're not doing enough. Actually, what's going to be helpful right now rather than harmful is to rather than sit here and beat yourself up more for it, just just kind of do something that helps for you a moment. Like go make yourself a cup of tea, go out and take three deep breaths on the decking to get some fresh air and then see how you feel. You know, it's okay, you've got this. And if you don't feel like playing right now, there will be more opportunities later. So we're kind of changing the inner dialogue so that we also will act differently in the external world. We're actually then more likely to be acting like the parent we want to be when we're coming at this from a point of self-compassion then we're soothing that threat by softening that inner critical voice that tells you you failed in this way and the other way. And then we can come at this from like, well, actually now I feel a bit more calm and grounded and connected. I can then spend five minutes doing the Lego or 10 minutes doing the Lego because it's not about quantity, it's about quality. 15 minutes of focused, connected play is way more important than you spending two hours there feeling resentful and burnt out and I don't want to do this. So I really take that pressure off yourself and kind of come about this, maybe parenting or maybe your couple's relationship with a little bit more acceptance around how so many of us struggle. So many of us go through these difficulties and what's going to be helpful rather than harmful for you to do towards yourself right now.
Thank you. I think that might be a beautiful way for us to finish. I will pop in the show notes a link to your book and how listeners can get in touch with you. And I wondered if there was anything that you wanted to leave listeners with. I'm thinking, you know, being in a position of recognising the challenges that are coming up in a coupled relationship and the pressures that we're feeling from all that we have to do, right, all that is on our plate and perhaps just reiterating that self-compassion piece. Is there anything you'd like to leave listeners with? Sure. I think that it's really important to acknowledge that there is no such thing as perfect. There is no perfect love. There is no perfect parent and there is no perfect worker. There is no perfect woman. And if anything, the pressure to try to be perfect makes you move further away from what matters to you. You're less likely to achieve your goals. You're less likely to show up like the person you want to be when you're aiming for perfect. When you aim for good enough, much like this workshop that this uh, podcast really aims to do, when you aim for good enough, you leave more energy left for you. And that means you're also more likely to be there in a compassionate kind of capacity for others. So balancing you in. So self-care is couple care. Self-care is parental care. Uh, It's actually turning towards you first, making sure that you're topping yourself up means that you're more likely to be the person you want to be. I hope you've resonated with something from today's episode. If you're a mother who would like to take these conversations further, consider joining my private membership group, Liberated Motherhood. Or if you're somebody who works with mothers, then check out my Motherhood Studies Practitioner Certification. You can find more details about these at my website and reach out and connect at drsophiebrock.com.